0: Thank you, choir. Indeed, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. The, the, the amazing irony that life only comes through the truth that the, the son died. But before we get there, some of you all have been in my, uh, in my study, in my, in my office over in the annex, and even fewer of you have been upstairs in the three rooms above my study. But if, if you have been there, if you've been in those places, you know that I like books because the, these rooms are filled with books. Uh, I wonder if you're like me, that, that w- w- when it comes time to buy a book, w- w- what do you do, right? You're, you're, you're in a bookstore, maybe you're, you're, uh, you're on Amazon or you've gotten some ad or whatever, and uh, the, the title of the book has caught your eye. What do you do next? If you're like me, you're trying to figure out, do I want to buy this book? I, I, I've looked at the title. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe I've glanced at the table of contents. and thought, yeah, okay, this, this, this looks like something worth reading. The very next thing I do, and if you're like me, you're this, you do the same, I, I flip it over to the back. And, and I, wonder, I want to read the endorsements. I want to know who's saying that this is a book worth buying, right? And the, reason, the reason for this, the reason for, for these endorsements on, on the back is, is quite simple. Publishers understand this. This is why they put them there. This is why they fill the, the opening fly leaves with even more endorsements. They know that no matter how catchy the title, no matter how compelling the table of contents, unless your professor is making you buy the book, right? a reader is unlikely to take a risk on a new and unknown author. You're just not going to do it. But if authors that you already know and like and trust are telling you on the back of this book, this is a great book. I wish I had written this book. You should buy this book. Okay, well, at that point, I'm thinking, okay, all right, maybe I'll give it a try. Because some people I already know, some people I trust, are telling me that this is worth reading. And of course, it's not just books. From running shoes to rain gear, products come with endorsements. They always come with endorsements. They come with endorsements because companies that are selling products, whether that's a book publisher or Columbia Sportswear, right, they they know that they need your trust in order to get your purchase. They need your trust in order to get your purchase. And how are they going to gain your trust? Well, well, through an endorsement by someone that you already trust, uh, one company that I, that I found, even in ter- even turned this idea of endorsement and the need for endorsement, they, they they turned this into their entire advertising slogan, their entire tagline. You probably know it because it's been around since 1978, and it has not changed in all of those years. Do you know what I'm talking about? Kix cereal. You know Kix cereal kid tested mother approved mother appro- i mean how can you get a better endorsement than mom right built right in who endorses your religion who 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 gave testimony to your religion such that you were willing to buy in well well the obvious answer of course is other followers of your religion but they're often the problem, aren't they? They're often the reason why we're not so sure we want to buy in in the first place. And when it comes to religion, what we're really looking for is not a celebrity endorsement. We're not looking for an endorsement just by other followers of the religion. What we really want is an endorsement from God. We want God to speak up and say, this is it. This is worth buying into. This is the truth. And in our passage this morning... That is exactly what John says we've been given. The Apostle John, writing to uh, uh, churches in Asia Minor, maybe even the church in Ephesus, uh, towards the end of the first century, he, he's written this letter, and, and he tells us that God himself has given an endorsement, a, a testimonial concerning Jesus Christ. And, and he says to us, it's on that basis and that basis alone that you should believe in him. You should believe based on the testimony, the endorsement of God. It's not just that Jesus is the best option among many religious products. No, it is, says John, that Jesus is uniquely God-approved. So turn with me, if you would, to the, the first letter of John, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, this is found on page 1903. 1,903, 1 John 5, verse 6. I'm going to read from verse 6 to verse 12. 1 John 5, verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does, does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. The testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Okay, so right off the bat, I've got to say, these are the strangest verses in the entire letter of 1 John, some of the strangest verses in in the whole Bible, particularly that very first verse, verse 6. We'll talk about that in a minute. But despite the the strange-sounding language, the point of these verses is very clear. If I could sum it up in a sentence, it would would simply be this. All who accept God's testimony that the crucified and risen Jesus is the incarnate Son of God have eternal life. All All who accept God's testimony that the crucified Jesus is the incarnate Son of God have life. That's that's the point that he's trying to make. Now, he's just finished arguing in the verses right before this that you cannot take Christianity in parts, right? It's it's, it's a package deal. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard us talk about that. Christianity is a whole package. It comes as as a package deal. It's all or nothing because of the very nature of the life that God gives us. Now, John comes along and says, You can't take Jesus in parts either, right? He is is fully God and fully man. From the beginning of his life all the way to the present day, it's, it's another package deal. And that's a big deal to swallow. And so John wants to make clear he's not asking us to take his word for it. He's asking us to take God's word for it. Really, what he's doing here in these verses is, is answering three very simple questions, questions that he's been dealing with ever since the very beginning of his letter. But he brings them into to a pretty sharp focus right here at the end as he's wrapping everything up, as he's, yeah, as he's really wrapping up his letter. He's asking the question, first, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And he, and he answers it there in verse six. This is who Jesus is. Second then, how do we know? How do we know this is who Jesus is? And he answers it there in in the end of verse six all the way through to verse 10. This is how we know God has testified. And and then third, why does it even matter? Why does it even matter? Verses 11 and 12. That's the outline. Who is Jesus? How do we know? Why does it matter? All right, so let's go back then to verse six. Who, Who is Jesus? Actually, let's start with verse 5, because it, even though in your English Bibles it looks like it's multiple sentences, in, in, in fact, verse 6 is the end of the sentence that begins in verse 5. So, so verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water And blood. All right, so here are the strange verses. Jesus is the one who came by water and blood. And then actually John goes out of his way. Maybe like you misunderstood it or something. He didn't come by water only, but by water and by blood. He he really emphasizes that second part, and by blood. What in the world is he talking about? Okay, there have been lots of, of ideas. Uh, and, and if you're interested in sort of a history of this passage and you want to hear about all the different ideas that have been put forward, come find me at the door afterwards. I'm happy to run through them with you. But, but Basically, just, just to cut through it all, John is referring to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which was, which was attested, it, it, it was revealed at his baptism. There's the bywater. And he's referring to the crucifixion of that same Jesus Christ. And, of course, his subsequent resurrection. There's the by blood. He's using shorthand language here that his readers would understand, and he knew his readers would understand, maybe because this was the same language that the false teachers were using. And he's he's going up against those false teachers at this point. The key here is, is his insistence that Jesus didn't come by water only. Several times in his letter, John has referred to to false teachers, he's called them antichrists, who deny that the Son of God has come in the flesh, that the man, Jesus, is also the second person of the Trinity, God, the divine Christ. These teachers have been denying this. John here strongly disagrees. He declares that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. It didn't begin at his baptism. It actually began at his conception. But it was at his baptism that this truth was revealed. I mean, up until that point, Jesus is just like any other Joe. I mean, he looked like a normal guy, right? We, we, we really, we, we've got a couple of early stories. And there's the birth narrative, but of course, most people don't know about that. There, there's, there, there are one or two like really early stories about, about his life as a child, but there's nothing particularly miraculous going on there. No, up until Jesus reveals himself in his ministry, Jesus looks like everybody else. But at his baptism, something dramatic happens, something amazing happens. He is revealed to be the Son of God. The Spirit descends upon him and a voice from heaven declares, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. John the Baptist declared, he, he explained that the reason he came baptizing with water was so that this event would happen, so that Jesus would be revealed to Israel. Jesus was revealed as the divine Christ at his baptism. He came by water. Now, a lot of the people that, that John was, was opposing, that the false teachers that were trying to pull people away here, they, they might have agreed with at least part of that. So John goes on, and he says, you know, it's, it's not just that he came by water. It's not just that Jesus is God incarnate. It is also that Jesus is God crucified. He came by blood. John began his letter insisting that the blood of Jesus Purifies us from sin. He says that in chapter one verse verse seven. That that the blood of Jesus, his son, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. He he gave his life on the cross as as a sacrifice for us, to to purify us, to, to take away sin. And and the testimony to that truth was not a voice speaking from heaven at the at the crucifixion. No, the testimony to that truth was that three days later, Jesus got up from the dead. That's not what, you know, ordinary Joes do. Ordinary people don't hang out in the grave for three days and then say, yeah, I'm done with this. I think it's time to get up. No, ordinary people don't do that. God does that. So in both his baptism and in his crucifixion, Jesus Christ is revealed to be the God-man, the eternal Son of God, from birth to death to resurrection to forevermore, and therefore is the Savior of the world. Now, th- this, is, this is kind of deep theology. I, I, I get it. You, you probably don't spend a lot of time every day just kind of thinking about the mysteries of the incarnation. But, but what John is saying here, and what I want to affirm for us this morning, is that the incarnation of the Son in the person of Jesus... And the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son in the person of Jesus matter. It matters hugely. This isn't just esoteric theology. This isn't just stuff that that seminarians are into or theology profs are into. Without the Trinity, there is no salvation from sin. If God is not triune, there is no salvation from sin. There is no good news. There is no overcoming the world, as, as John said there in, in the verse right before our passage this morning. Unless Jesus is man, unless he's fully human, he cannot be our representative. He cannot stand as our substitute. Unless, unless Jesus is fully human, he's really no better or no different than the sheep and the goats that Israel were sacrificing for all those centuries that never finally did away with sin. Now We need a Savior who is fully human, someone who can represent us in our sin before God perfectly, not just approximately, but fully and perfectly. But unless He is also God, He cannot save us. Who but God can bear the infinite punishment that our sins deserve? Who who but God could pay the penalty, not just for one sinner, but for all sinners who repent and believe, for the entire people of God? Whose life is worth that much? Whose life but God's? So you see what I'm driving at here. Unless... The one God exists in three persons, and unless the second person, the Son, actually took on our flesh and bore our sins on the cross, then there is no good news, none whatsoever. There is no way to salvation unless God is three in one, and unless God the Son took on flesh, represented us, and died for us. Praise God. Praise God that He is three in one. And praise God that the Son took on flesh. Praise God that Jesus Christ came by water and by blood. This is why we take time in our services on a regular basis to pull out the old ancient confessions of faith, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and say them together to remind ourselves. That this is what Christians have always believed. And they've believed it because it matters, because our salvation hangs upon it. Now, I wonder, you're here this morning, I wonder, I wonder if there is an aspect of Jesus, the God-man, that you struggle with, struggle with believing, struggle, struggle with accepting, is it his Humanity? The the idea that that God actually took on human flesh. Is it the idea that that he did that because because you need a representative? You you need someone who would stand in your place and do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Maybe it's his divinity. Maybe you don't have any trouble accepting Jesus as a man. After all, there's plenty of historical record to that. Maybe the real problem for you is Jesus being God. God. that that, that he would claim to be more than just a a teacher or, or an ethical guide. Friends, the scriptures testify, this is who Jesus is. It's not who Christians made him up to be. This is who he is, fully God and fully man. We cannot take him in parts. We have to take him as a whole. When we understand why, well, then we don't want to take him in parts. We realize I need him to be both God and man, one person for me. So perhaps if you're struggling with one aspect of Jesus over the other, you're you're struggling with his humanity or you're struggling with his divinity, perhaps the problem isn't really with Jesus. Perhaps your problem is really you and the pride that does not want to admit that you need this kind of Savior. Who is Jesus? He's the incarnate God, God in the flesh, crucified for us, the one who came by water and by blood. But how do we know? I mean, preacher, that all sounds really good. It sounds very Christian. You're throwing all this theology at me. How do we know? Look at verse 6, the end of verse 6. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. Now, before we get into these verses, some of you may have been reading out of the King James Version or well, you may have noticed there's a footnote at the bottom of your Bible, and it looks like I haven't read all the verses. In fact, uh, there's, there's the, kind of the rest of verse 7 that King James uh, Version Bibles have, but nobody believes that John wrote it, not even the current editors of the King James Version Bible. Nobody believes John wrote it. It was a later uh, edition in the 14th century, Uh, by a scribe who had read a theology textbook somewhere else. We kind of know the quote where he got it from. And apparently, he just scribbled, like maybe you annotate your books, he just scribbled in the margin this quote from from an earlier theology textbook. And somewhere along the way, it got added in as if it was really the Bible. But it's not. So we're not even going to talk about that footnote. And most modern translations don't even include it. We're just going to talk about the stuff that John the Apostle wrote, okay? And at this point, what John's doing is he's asking us to turn the book over and check out the endorsements on the back. But more more precisely, he's drawing on the legal culture of his day. He's he's calling his witnesses. How, how do you know this is true? Well, I'm going I'm to call my witnesses. And the first two witnesses are the water and the blood, the historical objective facts of Christ's life and his death. But then John calls a, a third witness, and this third witness corroborates what the first two objective historical witnesses said, and that's the Spirit who he says is the truth. John says in verse 10 that whoever believes has this testimony in his heart. In, in other words, The Spirit comes and testifies inwardly and subjectively to the individual, opening our eyes so that we can appreciate the testimony that's being given by the objective historical witnesses of the water and the blood. In in fact, John's actually saying a bit more than that. He's saying that without the Spirit, Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion are mute. They are inscrutable enigmas. They're testifying, but, but we don't know what they're saying. We don't understand their meaning. It's the Spirit who comes and helps us understand what, in fact, these historical witnesses are saying. When John says that the Spirit is truth, he's talking about his nature. He's basically saying the Spirit's not like us. Okay? Right? When we go to court, when we're called as a witness... Uh, We take the stand and and we have to take an oath. We have to say that we're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Why does the court put us under oath if we're going to testify? Because the court knows something about us, right? The court knows that by nature we don't tell the truth. And so we're going to have to be put under oath in order to be kind of constrained to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, but but not God. The, the, The Spirit of God is truth. He... He needs no such oath. He always tells the truth. And what is the truth that the Spirit tells? The truth that the Spirit tells is Jesus. The truth is Jesus. We ask, What's God like? And the Spirit says, Look at Jesus. We ask, How can I please God? And the Spirit comes along and says, Look at Jesus. We ask, how can I know God? How can I come into a relationship with God? And the Spirit comes along and says, look at Jesus. The Spirit is a bit like that person that you always try to avoid at parties, right? The person who only and always talks about one thing and one thing only. And it kind of doesn't matter what it is. It might be the Blazers. It might be their grandchildren. It, it, it might be uh, some television show Or their favorite hobby, but that's all they ever talk about, and it gets kind of boring, even if you were interested in it for the first few minutes, and so you avoid that person. That's the Spirit, okay? The Spirit is always and only talking about one thing. But the good news is, the Spirit is not like that other person that you always try to avoid at parties, the person that only and always talks about himself, right? No, the Spirit's not like that. The Spirit almost never talks about himself. The Spirit has one topic, and it's not him. It's Jesus. He was sent to testify to Jesus. And the one who sent him is God the Father. There in verse 9, we see it very, very clearly. John declares that the testimony of the Spirit is actually the testimony of the Father about his own Son. The baptism, you see, of Jesus was not a case of like wish fulfillment. You know, Jesus shows up at the baptism like every good Jew should have, should have done and, and, and he gets baptized and he really wishes that he was the Messiah and he kind of projects the whole thing. No, 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 no. no. The crucifixion was not a tragic mistake. It, it, it wasn't that Jesus was a, was a really good teacher and he had really good things to say but then things way got out of hand and he found himself on the cross. Not at all. Both events, according to John, were God's design, his carefully planned, his carefully articulated testimony about his own son. The father has testified about his son in history through objective historical events, and he's done it through the Spirit, and he continues to testify to the Son through the Spirit today. This is how we know. This is how we know that Jesus is the incarnate, crucified, and risen God. If if two or three human witnesses in court are enough to establish a fact, if if two or three blurbs on the back of a book are enough to secure our purchase, if, if the words of mere men are sufficient to establish the historical record, John basically says, how much more sufficient is the testimony of God himself? If we'll accept people's testimony about things, then we better be sure to accept God's testimony about something because God is greater. It's why Jesus would say to his opponents, the Pharisees, who are questioning you know, who he is, it's why he would say to them, if you don't believe the scriptures and what the scriptures, what God has already said about me, more miracles are not going to help. It's not going to help. If, you, if you're not willing to listen to God in his word, then it doesn't matter how many and how how spectacular the miracles are that I do. This is the choice that we have. John puts it in front of us there in verse 10. We, We have a very simple choice. Either we accept the testimony of God and believe that Jesus is the Son of God crucified for us, or we reject the testimony of God and call him a liar. There are no other options, according to John. Friends, God's not a liar. God is not a liar. You need to understand that unbelief, the rejection of God's testimony, unbelief is not a mistake or a misfortune. Unbelief is not understandable skepticism. Unbelief is not misguided rationalism. Unbelief is sin. Unbelief is the declaration that God is a liar and I am the measure of truth. And it's why God will hold unbelief to account on the last day. And it's why today, God commands you, God calls you to repent of that unbelief. But what you need to be very clear on especially if you find yourself here today as an unbeliever, what you need to be clear on is that God is calling you to, to repent and, and change your mind about his testimony, but he's not asking you to make a leap in the dark. He's, he's not asking you to like check your brain and just stop thinking and, and believe. No, no, John is quite clear here. John is not asking us to believe blindly. There is no such thing in the New Testament as blind belief. There is only belief based on credible testimony. That's all the New Testament ever calls us to do, to examine the testimony, to examine the witnesses, and to believe based on the credibility of their testimony. Christians believe that Jesus is God because we have accepted the Spirit's testimony about Jesus, about his life and his his ministry in which he Healed the sick, in which he raised the dead, in which he taught us who God is and how to know him. We believe the Spirit's testimony about his death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, as a substitute for us. And we believe his testimony about the resurrection from the dead and Jesus' ascension to heaven, declaring him to be Lord and Savior. We don't just make a blind leap. We rather have considered the testimony and we accept it as credible. The record is here in the New Testament. But it is the Spirit's testimony in the end that you must accept. There there really is no final objective proof that compels belief apart from the Spirit's work. I mean, let's just say that we could identify Beyond, beyond a shadow of a doubt, exactly which tomb they laid Jesus in. There are a couple of options over in Israel if you go today. There are a couple of options. I think one is a better option than the other. But, but let's just say we could settle that whole debate and know for certain this was the tomb that they put Jesus in. And let's just say we could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that that tomb had been empty since the third day, friend, you're still not going to believe. You're still not going to believe unless the Spirit works. There is no objective proof that compels belief apart from the Spirit's work. And so John says here that the person who believes already has the testimony of the Spirit in himself, in his heart. Just as we saw a couple of weeks ago that God must act first, God must initiate and give us life, so we see here the Spirit must work first. The Spirit works first, convincing us of the truth, and then leading us to put our faith in Jesus, not apart from evidence, but giving us eyes to see the weight and reality of the evidence. No one comes to Christ apart from the prior work of the Spirit. If we did, we'd have something to boast in, right? But there is no boasting here. Now, we don't figure it out for ourselves, and then the Spirit comes along and confirms to us that we got the right answer. That's not the way it works. No, we come to Christ because the Spirit brings us to him, leads us to him. And so, friend, if if you're not a believer, and if you find this testimony at least interesting, if not compelling, let me encourage you to pray. To pray that the Spirit would change your heart, would open your eyes, would enlighten your mind so that you could see the truth and trust in it. Now, I think for us as a church, there are five things that that we want to take away for our evangelism because of this this truth that the Spirit must work first. Five things about our evangelism, and I'm going to run through them really quickly. First, we want to pray. We want to pray when we share the gospel. We want to pray that the Spirit would testify and the Spirit would convince. Our evangelism, apart from the Spirit's work, useless. So we want to pray. Second, we want to point people to Christ. We don't want to point people to apologetics and proofs and all this evidence because, frankly, the Spirit is testifying about Jesus So let's point to the one that the Spirit is testifying to. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Let's keep our focus where it belongs. Point to Christ because that's who the Spirit is testifying about. Third, use Scripture. Use Scripture in your evangelism because Scripture is the Spirit's testimony about Jesus. We believe that the Scriptures were inspired by the Spirit for the purpose of revealing Jesus. So let's take people to the Scriptures. I know they don't believe it. They don't have to believe it in advance. We're not asking them to to admit to the inerrancy of Scripture first. We know that the Scriptures are the Spirit's words and the power of God unto salvation. So let's use Scripture. Fourth, we want to call people to follow Jesus, not to everything else that might come along. Right, You may think that being a Christian has some very, very clear and obvious political ramifications. Friends, don't call people to your politics. Call people to Jesus. Because that's who the Spirit is moving people toward. And then finally, fifth, we don't want to confuse our testimony with the Spirit's testimony. Okay? Many of us have learned how to give our testimony about how we came to know Jesus. Your, your testimony about your experience of coming to know Christ is great. And it very well may allow you kind of to build a bridge with that person. But but friends, you're not the destination. Jesus is. Jesus is the destination. So use your testimony to build the connection personally between you and the other person. But don't forget, we, we want to lead them to Christ. So talk about Jesus. Talk not just about what he means to you, Talk about what Jesus did objectively in history on the cross because that's the gospel. and That's what the Spirit is testifying to. All right, Jesus is the incarnate God crucified for us. How do we know? We know because God has testified. So third and finally and and briefly, why does it matter? Why does it even matter? Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Why does it matter? Well, quite simply, it matters because our belief in Jesus brings us eternal life. And when John talks about eternal life, he's not not talking merely about you know, physical, biological life, about 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 my body never dying. Uh, unless Jesus comes back first, this body's gonna die. No, no, he's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about the life of God, a life that, that, that begins now, the very life of heaven beginning in me now, and that, that someday will resurrect my body and, and change it. And John says that this life comes only through faith in the sun Now if you're at all sensitive I think this immediately raises the question why wouldn't God give this life to everyone why would he tie this life this eternal spiritual heavenly life why would he tie it to conscious faith in Jesus Christ I understand the question It's a question that many, many people ask. But what I want to suggest is that it's the wrong question. The question is not, why wouldn't he give this life to everyone? The question, the question that really should stagger you, the question that really should amaze you is why would he give this life to anyone at all? Life with God God's life, eternal spiritual life, is not something we deserve, just the opposite. All of us are sinners against God. We are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by choice. The Apostle Paul says in in the book of Romans that the wages of sin are death. Friends, we've all earned our wages. We haven't been slackers on the job. We've earned our wages, and God is just to pay them to us. So if we are to have life, God must do something apart from justice. God must give us life as a a gift. Not as something we've earned, not as something we deserve, not as something that we have a right to, but no, as a pure and simple gift. This is what grace is. Grace, the grace of God is his choice to give us what we do not deserve and what we cannot earn. And friends, God has chosen to give us this gift through His Son, through Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ satisfied the demands of God's justice fully, completely, so that He might lavish on us the riches of God's love fully and completely. And this is why Faith in Jesus is necessary. Life only comes through the death of the Son. This is what the choir was just singing. Exactly right. Life only comes through the death of God's Son, and God would not have that go unnoticed. God would not have that taken for granted. He would have our faith in the Son testify along with him That Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of praise. That Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. Because Jesus and Jesus alone is the one in whom justice and mercy meet. The justice of God satisfied. The love of God poured out. So now do you understand why it is right that God would tie conscious faith in Jesus to the gift of God? Of eternal life to be trusting in anything else for salvation is to reject the son it is to call god a liar it is therefore to remain dead in sin no it is to trust in christ and christ alone that it is to have life today friend today is the day if you have not put your faith in christ i urge you to do so because to have christ is to have life. But to not have Christ is to already be dead. I'd love to talk to you about that more. There are people in this room that would love to talk to you about that more. Come find me at the door afterwards. Come, come talk to somebody down front. Talk with the friend that you came with. But do not leave without considering God's testimony about his son and the life that comes through it. Finally, Henson, let me just point out that here are two great motivations in these verses, these last two verses, two great motivations for our involvement, our giving ourselves to the work of missions globally and the work of evangelism here locally. And what are those two motivations there? Quite simply, the glory of Christ and the life that he brings the glory of Christ and the life that he brings. Without conscious faith in Jesus, people have death and only death. It's not that Jesus is the best way. It's not that he makes life meaningful. It's not that Jesus gives us a beautiful way to experience God's love now, even though we're going to also experience it later. No, it's that he is the only means of life and therefore the only one worthy of worship. In 1800, I saw this statistic recently, in the year 1800, 75% of the world's population had not heard the testimony of God about his son. Today, best estimates, 28% of the world's population has not heard of God's testimony about his son. Friends, that's extraordinary. That is extraordinary progress. Because we understand that the best thing to do for people who have not heard about the son, the best thing to do for them is not to leave them in their ignorance. So that they're not accountable for rejecting the gospel. No, friends, they're dead already. Now, their only hope, they may reject it. But their only hope is to hear the testimony of God about his son, because it is through the sun that life comes, and it is only through the sun. So, Henson Baptist Church, what are we willing to do? What are we willing to do to see that more of Portland, that more of the world, hears this life giving testimony? Are you willing to suffer a little more personal embarrassment amongst your friends, amongst your neighbors? on the job, as you actually begin to talk about Jesus publicly, as you gossip about Jesus to your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers? Are we willing to change our schedules so that we would actually have some time to meet some non-Christians and build a friendship with them so that we could tell them about Jesus? Are we willing to to make some new friends that we don't really need because our lives are filled up with friends. And honestly, they might be difficult friends, not easy friends. Are we willing to do that? How about giving sacrificially to this church's budget so that we can send more people overseas to those who have no chance of hearing unless somebody crosses a cultural barrier to take the message to them? Parents of children, how about instilling in your children at least the possibility that a wonderful thing to do with your life would be to be one of those people that crosses a cultural barrier, to take the gospel. So yeah, you could be a lawyer, you could be a doctor, you could, you could be a, a craftsman or a tradesman of some kind, but you could also be a missionary. Have you thought about that? Are we willing To begin to talk about that now with our young children, knowing that some of them, to maybe our chagrin, are going to take us up on it, which means we're not going to see the grandkids, which means they're not going to be home for Christmas and birthdays and Mother's Day. Are we willing to go ourselves, not just send our kids? Are we willing to go ourselves? Friends, it's costly. It is costly in every way to take the testimony of God about his son to a world that doesn't want to hear it. But why wouldn't you do it? Why not spend big? Why not give ourselves away? Why not spend ourselves in reckless abandon for the gospel message? After all, we spend tons of money every year Based on the endorsements of celebrities, we spend our our time and we plan our vacations and we spend our money going to places based merely on the recommendation of friends and guidebooks. We raise our kids based on the advice of experts. And those are all just men, men and women. Christian, you have the testimony of God himself. You have God's word for it. That if you have Jesus, then you, you Christian, you have eternal life. So rest assured in your faith and start spending big for the gospel. Stop living your life as as if it's something that you've you've got to save and and, and conserve and and protect and manage in in, in case you might lose a little bit of it. Stop living, Christian, as if maybe life is found in Jesus, but maybe it's also found in wealth or respectability amongst my friends or, or other people's opinions of me. Christian, you know life is found in Jesus. You have God's word for it. So let's live like it, shall we? Let's live like it. Jesus Christ is God approved. What better endorsement do you need? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would indeed believe you not just give you lip service, not just just say that we believe, not just recite words, but that we would believe you, That, that your son is God in the flesh, crucified and raised for us, and that in him we have forgiveness of sins and life eternal. And we pray that our belief would be obvious to all, as we spend ourselves with reckless abandon for the sake of the gospel. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.